This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. And now we go on to the internal evidence for it is claimed that by implication the temple in Jerusalem is still standing when the Apostle John is told to measure it. These are the words in chapter 11, the verses 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, and 3. Here it is. Quote, And I was given a reed like a rod and was told, Arise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But exclude the outer court of the temple and do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days and be clothed in sackcloth. End of quote. The argument is that the entire New Testament is silent about the demise of the temple. This shocking event predicted by Jesus in the Gospels and fulfilled 40 years after his ascension would presumably have been mentioned in Revelation if this book were written after the fall of Jerusalem. One writer concludes, quote, it has been shown that at the time of the writing of Revelation, the temple complex is spoken of as still standing. It is inconceivable that a book of the nature of Revelation could fail to mention its already having been destroyed if Revelation were written after A.D. 70. I would like to make a comment here. If this is true, that the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the cessation of the priesthood, was so significant in the early Christian church that we would have expected it also in the writings of the late first century. And I call to mind the epistle of Barnabas, and I call to mind the Didache. These writings do not speak one word about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not there. And then to say, but the book of Revelation, if it were written in the year 95, should have mentioned this destruction and the cessation of the priesthood, doesn't add up. I move on. The New Testament uses the Greek term hereon, and I will put it here on the board. Here's the word, hereon, and transliterate it. Now, there is also another word that is used, and that is the word naos. and transliterate it, here it is. 
Now this is significant. They have two words in the Greek for the temple. This word means temple complex. Look at the buildings the disciples are saying to Jesus recorded in Matthew 24. (coughs) The beautiful structure of the whole temple complex. This word is not found in the book of Revelation. It's not there. This word, naos, means the holy of holies, also known as the most holy place behind the curtain. And this word, naos, is found repeatedly in the book called Revelation. Now we continue. The New Testament uses a Greek term hieron for the temple complex. And the word naos for the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. Throughout the book of Revelation, John never uses the first term to refer to the temple, but always the second one, a total of 16 times in Revelation. The inner sanctum was the place the high priest entered once a year on the Day of Atonement. There he was in the presence of the Almighty God to sprinkle blood for himself and the people of Israel in remission of sins, Leviticus 16. But when Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, shed his blood on the cross and died, the curtain of the Holy of Holies was split from top to bottom, Matthew 27:51. God made it known that no longer only the high priest, but rather all God's people might freely enter his presence. The emphasis then is not on the temple complex in Jerusalem prior to its its demise. Rather, John accents the people of God who now with Jesus, their mediator, have the privilege of entering God's presence. Hebrews 9.24 They are the people of God and offer the sacrifices of praise on His altar. By contrast, the outer court where the altar of burnt offerings stood is given to the Gentiles, the unbelievers, who are cast out from God's presence. They trample on the great city which is no longer holy, but unholy and figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. John intends to convey not a literal interpretation of the temple and the earthly city, but rather a symbolic understanding of God's people who dwell in His presence, that is, in His temple. Next, if the period of 42 months or 1260 days refers to the beginning of the Jewish wars, and ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, we would be able to determine the date for the composition of Revelation. This period lasted from the spring of 67 to the autumn, notice the British term, the autumn of 70, until the fall of Jerusalem. The persecutions instigated by Nero also lasted that long, from the late autumn of 64 to the 9th of June, 68, when the emperor took his own life. An approximate date 
for revelation would then be in the middle or latter part of the 60s. Interpreting the time frame of 42 months or 1260 days, not symbolically but literally, creates a number of problems. First, these numbers also appear in context, chapter 12, 6 and 13, 5, where a literal interpretation fails. Next, Nero set the city of Rome ablaze in July 64 and certainly did not wait until late autumn of that year to make the Christians a scapegoat. Third, the Jewish revolt against Rome broke out in the spring of 66 and came to an end with the destruction of Jerusalem in August, September of the year 70. And last, the trampling of the holy city by the Gentiles could begin only when Jerusalem fell into the hands of Roman soldiers. To place the 42 months after September 70 is meaningless, for there is no historical incident that marks their, de their termination. John portrays the conflict between Christ and Satan, God's people and Satan's masses. He described the scene of conflict symbolically so that the numbers in the account of chapter 11 should be interpreted similarly. Furthermore, the other parts in this chapter receive a figurative interpretation. The measuring rod, the measuring the two olive trees and the two lampstands, all in 11 verses 1 through 4, where a passage is filled with symbolism, one would not expect literalism. We conclude by saying that the text of 11 verses 1 through 3 does not prove a date prior to the ruin of Jerusalem in 70. The three and a half years just does not fit and many other problems as well. I continue. <clears throat> we now look at chapter 13, the number of the beast. And there you have it. In 13.18, here is wisdom let anyone who has in mind calculate the number of the beast. It is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. Revelation thirteen eighteen. Now a bit of hilarity. Six, six, six refers to President Reagan. Ronald. Six letters. Wilson, six letters. Reagan, six letters. One more. You don't have to smile. You have seen W, W, W. Well, that's the number of the Antichrist, 666. How do I know? Well, you have to go to the Hebrew alphabet. And you have Aleph, Beit, and so on, Gimel. And the sixth letter... In the Hebrew alphabet is Vav. And so you have Vav, Vav, Vav. 
www. Nonsense. Sorry to say, that's nonsense. Okay, let's begin with the, with the mystery of the number 666, which numerous scholars ascribe to Nero, who is then designated as the Antichrist. Writing extensively about this number, Irenaeus points out the danger of knowing the name of the Antichrist. Quote, Moreover, another danger, by no means trifling, shall overtake those who falsely presume that they know the name of the Antichrist. End of quote. He notes that there is no lack of names and mentions three that fit the number 666. Uvantes, Latinos, you can see Latin in it, and Titan, which is, of course, Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70. He calls attention to Titan as a prospect. But he refrains from choosing any one of these names. Quote, We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of the Antichrist. For if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. End of quote. At the end of the second century, Irenaeus hesitated to venture an exact meaning for this mysterious number. Not until 1830 did four German scholars propose the name Nero Caesar for the number 666. Notice they expanded the name, not just Nero, Nero Caesar. In the 20th century, additional suggestions have been made, for example, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. The choice of Nero Caesar for the name to interpret the number 666 requires the addition of the letter N to the name to make it Neron Caesar. This is the Hebrew, Hebraic, Aramaic spelling of the name, which has been verified with a reading in the Murabat manuscript of the Dead Sea Scrolls. If we assume that John had in mind Neron Caesar, we have to note that a textual variant that has the reading 616-16 spells Nero Caesar. But already in the second century, Irenaeus discusses and rejects this variant reading. So, if we should understand the number 666, to refer cryptically to Nero, we have to ask why John writes openly about the seven hills of the city of Rome in 17 verse 9. Roman writers commonly use this expression to designate Rome. And if we say 666 equals Nero as the beast, then the context presents difficulties. First, One of the beast's heads had received a mortal blow administered by someone else. 13.3 But Nero committed suicide. 
while the beast continues to live. Next, the fatal wound that had healed symbolizes return to life. This clearly is Satan's parody of seeking to imitate Christ's resurrection. 13.3 and 1 verse 18. And the legend of Nero returning to life, Nero the Divivus, is adapted to give the beast a parodic counterpart of the future coming of Christ. End of quote. Third, in 13, the verses 16 and 17, the beast dictates that all the followers had to have this number stamped on their right hands and foreheads. Without this number, no one could buy or sell. But Roman historians report nothing concerning such a decree in either Rome or the provinces. Yet the Apocalypse repeatedly mentions the mark of the beast and the number of his name. Even if we should identify the number of the beast with the name Nero, the question remains whether John wanted to convey a period in history or to contrast Satan and Christ, the vanquished and the victor. I suggest that a symbolic interpretation fits best the context. Chapter 13 portrays the power of Satan over the world so that anyone who refuses to receive the mark will be shut out. In short, Satan appears to have conquered the saints. Quote, If anyone goes into captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. Here is the endurance and faith of the saints. Verse 10, end of quote. John, however, shows a contrast in the next chapter where the Lamb and the 144,000 saints are standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb's name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. 14 verse 1. The followers of Satan have the number of His name marked on their right hand and forehead. The people of God had the names of the Lamb and the Father written on their foreheads. 14.1 John does not indicate that every follower of Satan has been branded with the number 666. And he does not say that all the followers of the Lamb have the number of Jesus' name indelibly written on their foreheads. John speaks symbolically. He contrasts Satan who empowers the beast and Christ, who leads his saints to victory. The saints are the ones who are following the Lamb wherever he goes. 14.4 The message of chapters 13 and 14 is that Satan's power is limited, for Christ has overcome the world. And now we go on to the seven kings in chapter 17. A related passage that intimates a time reference is found in chapter 17, and I quote, And there are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, another has not yet come, 
And when he comes, it is necessary that he remains a little while. And the beast that once was and now is, he is the eighth and is of the seven, and he goes to his destruction. 17, the verses 10 through 11, end of quote. Who are these seven kings or emperors? If we begin with Julius Caesar and add the names of his successors, here they are, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, then it is obvious that Nero is number six in the dynasty of the Caesars. But who is number seven? And who is number eight? In the year after Nero's death, 68-69, three successors ruled, each for a few months. Galba, Otho, Vitellius. In the autumn of 69, Vespasian, general of the Roman forces besieging Jerusalem, was summoned to Rome when he became the emperor and ruled for a period of ten years. Vespasian appointed his sons, Titus and Domitian, to succeed him. Titus reigned from 79 to 81 and Domitian from 81 to 96. Some interpreters are of the opinion that Augustus is the first emperor mentioned in Scripture and that the three pretenders to the throne, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, should not be counted. This sequence places Vespasian as number six. Titus as seven and Domitian as eight. Still others begin with Caligula, omit the three pretenders, and place Domitian as number six. Instead of counting Roman emperors, some scholars refer to chapter two and seven in Daniel, and on that basis speak of secular kingdoms that rise, flourish, and collapse. In sequence, these kingdoms are ancient Babylonia, Assyria, Neo-Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Greco-Macedonia, and Rome. Rome is number six and fits the text. Five have fallen, one is. Rome is still the powerful empire, while the seventh empire has not yet come. The objection is that the text speaks not about kingdoms, but kings. Although this is true, there is validation for the word kingdoms. The Hebrew text of Daniel 7.17 reads, as we have it in the New Revised Standard Version, as for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth. End of quote. The term kings is translated in numerous versions, including the Septuagint, as kingdoms. Because kingdoms over which kings rule are greater and more enduring than the rulers. Rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, John looks at the prophecies of Daniel and considers kings as representatives of their kingdoms. When he writes the term to fall in five kings have fallen, this verb it applies more appropriately to empires that decline than to kings who are dethroned. Secular empires that are pitted against God's kingdom either collapse or are overthrown. 
Only the kingdom of heaven endures forever while all other empires perish. The conflict portrayed in Revelation is that of Satan who claims to have dominion over the kingdoms of the world, Luke 4, 6, and Christ who is King of kings and Lord of lords, 17, 14, and 19, 16. Granted that John could have alluded to seven historical rulers of the second half of the first century, we would rather say that he writes the number seven as the symbol of completeness and refers to their totality. However, John writes about an eighth who is of the seventh. Quote, And the beast that once was and now is, he is the eighth and is of the seventh, and he goes to his destruction. 17 verse 11. The interpretation of this verse must be seen in the light of the preceding context where John speaks of the beast that will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. 17.8 This beast will come up out of the abyss which is the place where evil angels are kept who have their own place and assignment in their evil empire. The beast is not of the seven rulers, but is the concentration of the evil <coughs> that is in them. It is greater than any one individual. This beast is the personification of the Antichrist. Look at Second Thessalonians 2, the verses 3 and 4, where you read that the Antichrist is in the place of God. He arises from the pit, but is on his way to destruction. Conclusively, the eighth personifies the Antichrist, who already has lost the battle against Christ, even though the war itself is not yet over. And now the setting in the churches. What we're going to see in the setting of the churches the seven churches of Asia Minor, we will notice that the recipients of these, of these seven epistles are not first-generation Christians, but second-generation Christians. Let's read. John wrote seven letters to individual churches in the province of Asia. The contents of these letters reveal the setting and reflect the time in which they were composed. Even a cursory reading leaves the impression that the recipients were not first but second generation Christians. The conditions in the seven churches hardly confirm the notion that the people had only a short while ago received the gospel. We read of an abandonment of first love Practices of the Nicolaitans, persecution, martyrdom, teachings of Balaam, toleration of sexual immorality, learning Satan's deep secrets, and being rich in worldly wealth. Indeed, the setting of these churches does not comport with what we know of the churches founded and pastors, pastored by Paul in the 50s. Now note for just a moment... 
I try to do everything by way of a chronological scale. And you're still with me when I talk about chronology. Are you? Okay, Jesus ascended in the year 30. Paul began his missionary journeys in the year 46, the first one. And the second one in the year 50. And the third one in the year 53. Are you still with me? Good. Now, when Paul came to Ephesus at the beginning of his third missionary journey, he really was instrumental in founding the church, the Christian church in Ephesus. And I told you earlier today that Paul opened a school in the hall of Tyrannus to teach people to become pastors. So we are now at the beginning stages of the church in Ephesus. Good. Now we continue. And in the year 57, Paul on his way to Jerusalem stops at Miletus close to Ephesus and the elders of Ephesus come to Paul and Paul gives them a speech, a sermon, which is recorded for us in chapter 20 of the book of Acts. Now the word in that speech, sort of a lengthy speech, about backsliding. Not a word. Now we go to Paul in prison in Rome. These are the years 60 to 62. And let us say about the year, give or take one or two, but 61, 62, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians, which is our canonical book, the Ephesians. And again, throughout that whole letter, you do not read anything about second generation Christians backsliding. It's first generation Christians. Then Paul writes a letter to Timothy. In the year 63, Timothy is the pastor in Ephesus. Read that whole epistle and you will note, well, there are some little problems, but it seems that these people are first generation Christians. And now, if you hold to an early date for the book of Revelation, then you have to say that chapter 2 in the book of Revelation, where you find the epistle, the letter to the Ephesian church, is for first generation Christians. And it doesn't fit. Because you read, see the height from which you have fallen. The perfect tense is used. You have drifted away. And the whole tone and tenor of that letter in Revelation 2 is in connection with second generation Christians. Okay, now I continue. Paul ministered for three years, 53 to 56 in Ephesus, and wrote epistles to Timothy, who was pastor there in the 60s. Nothing in Acts and Paul's epistles corresponds to the conditions prevalent in the church of Ephesus. When John wrote the epistle that Jesus dictated, backsliding and degenerating faith had set in at Ephesus and the other churches. 
neither the personal epistles addressed to Timothy in the mid-60s, nor the general epistles of Peter sent to the same region at that time reflect the situation depicted in Jesus' letters to the churches in the province of Asia. Paul opposed Judaizers who slipped into the churches he had founded, but the seven letters of the Apocalypse disclosed various adversaries, including the Nicolaitans, followers of Balaam, and followers of Jezebel. Quote, When we read the seven, especially the last four, epistles and uh, in the Apocalypse, we are in a different atmosphere. Not the narrowness of Judaism, but the wild immorality and worldliness of heathenism is now striving to gain the upper hand. And the Christian has to overcome not Judaism, but the world in its widest sense. That's a quote from Milligan. If we opt for an early date for Revelation, we encounter problems because of factual material presented in Acts and the Epistles of Paul. As we already noted, Paul served the church at Ephesus in the mid-50s. Timothy was the pastor there in the first half of the 60s. We lack any evidence that John was a pastor in Ephesus before the demise of Jerusalem. But if any, even if he was in Ephesus, his time of service prior to his exile would have been short. Next. The seven letters to the churches in the province of Asia seem to show that John was well acquainted with the spiritual status of each one of them. But this seems hardly possible if John was there only briefly. Apart from Jesus' instruction to write these letters, Third, we, we doubt that John could have come to Ephesus in the first part of the 60s because addressing his letter to the, the Ephesians in 62, Paul would not have failed to mention John and commend him for his work. Fourth, in their writings, both Peter and Paul are silent about John's labors in Ephesus. This appears to indicate that John did not come to Ephesus during their lifetime. And last, Polycarp wrote a letter to the church in Philippi and indicates that when Paul composed his canonical letter to the Philippians in 62, the knowledge of Christ has not yet come to Smyrna. We're talking about the year 62. And that rules out an early date. Okay, I'll move on. Are there any questions thus far? Is it all clear? Have I convinced you? Okay, <laughs> move on. Throughout the Apocalypse, that is point four, persecution under Domitian. Throughout the Apocalypse, John alludes to the persecution that God's people had to endure. He himself experienced hardship by being banished to the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he writes words of encouragement to the church in Smyrna. Quote, Look, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested 
and you will have tribulation for ten days. End of quote, 2.10. He refers to saints who have been slain, and he alerts the readers to the time of trial. Certainly Nero vented his rage on the Christians in Rome and put them to death, but is Domitian also known as persecutor of God's people, advocates of an early date opt for the Neronian persecutions in the 60s, while those who hold to a late date look at Domitian and the mid-90s. Evidence from secular and Christian writers is lacking, however, to prove that persecution instigated by either Nero or Domitian spread to the provinces. Clement of Alexandria, at the beginning of the 3rd century, notes that Nero and Domitian were the only two emperors who slandered Christian teaching and falsely accused Christians. And a century later, 325, Eusebius writes that Domitian had become the, quote, the successor of Nero's campaign of hostility to God, end of quote. These references do not prove the point. It is undeniable that the content of Revelation speaks of persecution and suffering. The Apocalypse presents history and prophecy, realism and idealism, fact and uncertainty. The first recipients had experience of experiencing oppression, but they had to prepare themselves for more severe abuse. Paul records that one of the earliest Christian confessional statements is, quote, Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. This declaration was in direct conflict with that of the Romans. Caesar is Lord. The Romans regarded refusal to express their creed as a sign of insubordination to the emperor and the state. Repudiation of the highest authority in the empire was considered treason punishable by execution or exile. For the Christian, the highest authority on earth and in heaven was the Lord Jesus Christ. To pay homage to the emperor was abandoning the master who had redeemed them. To the Romans, Christianity had become an exclusive religion that brooked no compromise for his followers spoke of the kingdom of God in which Jesus ruled as king. Because of their adherence to the Christian faith, Christians as a class had to endure persecution at the hands of Roman officials who were appointed to enforce the state religion in every city and town. These officials had the authority to punish those people who refused to honor Caesar by executing or exiling them. During the reign of the Emperor Trajan, 98 to 117, Pliny the Younger served as governor in the province of Bithynia from 110 to 113 and asked the emperor for advice on how to punish Christians who refused to obey Roman law on religious worship. Pliny informed Trajan that he had asked defendants who were accused of being Christians 
at least three times to renounce their faith in Christ. And he had warned them that they would be punished. When they persisted, he would then give the order to have them executed. Apparently, Pliny did not initiate the persecution of Christians, but merely followed standard procedure. He only asked advice because of the, in, of the numerous cases before him. And when Trajan responded that Pliny had followed established Roman policy, we had ascertained that enforcing it had already begun by the last decade of the first century. There is still further evidence relating to the province of Asia and in particular to Ephesus in the time of Emperor Domitian. In 89 and 90, the temple of the Sebastoi, that is the family of Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, was dedicated. It was customary to appoint temple wardens in cities that had dedicated a temple for the worship of emperor. S. Friesen writes as follows, quote, Near Chorus, that is the temple warden, therefore became a covenant title in spite of early efforts in Asia to moderate its impact. The explosive spread of the term indicates not merely a new city title of local significance, but a fundamental shift in the identification of these cities, a shift in which the, the worship of the emperors played a crucial role. The innovations that began with Asia's temple of the Sabastoi in Ephesus changed the public discourse of religion and identity in the eastern Mediterranean for centuries to come. The significance of temples dedicated to Roman emperors cannot be underestimated in relation to the apocalypse. Pergamum, a city located to the north of Ephesus in the province of Asia, was known for emperor worship. Here the state religion was practiced and offerings were presented to the image of the emperor. Emperor worship of Domitian, who was honored as, in Latin, Dominus et Deus, translated Lord and God, was a prevailing phenomenon in Ephesus. And John encountered it in the 90s. Quote, when John denounced imperial worship, he was not attacking a marginal socio-religious phenomenon. The developments in provincial worship of the emperors that are manifested in the temple of the Sabastoi indicate that the worship of emperors played an in increasingly important role in society at many levels. End of quote. In the light of emperor worship in Ephesus, dating the composition of Revelation to the last part of Domitian's reign, is not at all unrealistic. We move on to point five, Jewish opposition. For the first few decades after Pentecost and the founding of the church, Christians enjoyed the protection of Roman authorities 
because they placed them on the level, the same level as the Jews. The Romans accorded the Jewish religion legitimacy and its adherents were exempt from emperor worship. Followers of Christ found shelter under the umbrella the Romans had provided for the Jewish people. When Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed, the legal separation of Judaism and Christianity, which was already taking place gradually, became increasingly more permanent. Jewish people were among the first to bring charges against the Christians before the Romans, so that the Jews became a distinct threat to the church. The Jewish Council of Jamnia, convened in the year 90, Jamnia is close to Tel Aviv today, the Jewish Council of Jamnia, convened in the year 90 to acknowledge the extent of the Old Testament canon. So, in the year 90, the Old Testament canon was acknowledged, or to put it differently, was ratified by the Jewish people. Now, keep that date in mind. At the same time, they added a curse on the Christians in the so-called 18 benediction prayer that was part of the synagogue liturgy. The Jews sought to expose the Christians by expelling them from their houses of worship and denying them civil protection. They were indeed the persecutors of the Christian community and began, became agents of Satan. In his letters to the churches of Smyrna in Philadelphia, John notes these Jewish synagogues and associates with them with Satan. Quote, I know the blasphemy from the ones who call themselves Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. 2 verse 9. 2. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan and who call themselves Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and admit that I have loved you. 3 verse 9. When Pliny executed numerous Christians whose names had been handed to him by an informant, we assume that among the informers were members of the local synagogues. We conclude that in the last decade of the first century, persecution was an undeniable reality and that revelation reflects that period in which believers lived and died. The Apocalypse notes that John was exiled to the island of Patmos because of the word of God, 1.9. It notes that Antipas... The faithful witness of Jesus was put to death in the city of Pergamum, where Satan lives, 2.13. Even though the Apocalypse men mentions only one exile and one execution, the historical, sociological, and religious settings in the latter part of the first century testify to the persecution of numerous Christians. Although many believers were put to death in Rome in the last years of Nero's reign, Christians also had to endure significant persecution throughout the Roman provinces of Asia Minor in the days of Emperor Domitian. 
the veracity of Irenaeus may be questioned because of some doubtful stories about John. On the other hand, he was acquainted with Polycarp, 69 to 155, who had been a disciple of the Apostle and served as a bridge from the latter part of the first century to the latter part of the next. We would expect both Polycarp and Irenaeus to relate at least something about John that is historically verifiable. The reference of Irenaeus implies that John's apocalypse dates from the time when Domitian's rule ended. Frank. Uh, Dr. Kistemacher, um, when Christianity was no longer considered a sect within Judaism, it was considered an illicit religion before Rome, right? But are we to understand that even after the destruction of Jerusalem, that Jews were still given that waiver, that they didn't have to um, consider that Caesar Lord, or it was just focused on the Christians? The question is, the Jews had the privilege of being exempt from Caesar worship and Roman idolatry because they had their own religion. Now, was that true also after the destruction of Jerusalem? And my answer is yes. Now, I do not want to sound racist, but keep in mind a few examples from the Old Testament. Joseph, a Jew, second in command in Egypt. Daniel, a Jew, second in command of the Babylonian Empire, Persian Empire. Henry Kissinger, a Jew, during the administration of Nixon, second in command as Secretary of State. Robert Rubin, last administration, Secretary of the Treasury. Alan Greenspan, a Jew. In Rome, the Jewish people were able to influence the emperor. And we have plenty of proof. Now, what the Jewish people did, let's take Paul's case. Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. The commander said, I bought my Roman citizenship. How did you get it? Paul said, I was born a Roman citizen. Well, he wasn't born in Rome. He was born in Tarsus in the province of Cilicia. What happened in the year 63 when the Roman forces came into Cilicia? The Jewish people in control of city government went to the general, Pompey, and said, we will serve you. We will be obedient citizens to Rome, provided, here it comes, provided that you give us the status, Jewish people, of Roman citizenship, and then added the clause, and our offspring. So Paul, who was born probably about the year zero, let's, or one, could say, yes, 
I am a Roman citizen by birth. Now, the Jews said when the Roman forces entered Israel in the year 63 before Christ, we want to have our own religion. We have our own temple, our own worship. But we will be obedient to you. And so the Sadducean party was in control, the priesthood. And they were responsible directly to Rome. And you can imagine the words of Caiaphas spoken. Well, it's better when one man dies than that the whole nation dies. So all along, not only in Israel, but throughout the diaspora, the dispersion, the Romans, the Romans granted the Jewish people their own religion, the privilege of observing their own religion. And as long as the Jewish people were still living in Rome, pardon me, still living in Jerusalem, the Christians were under the umbrella of the Roman exemption. But when in the year 70, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the priesthood came to an end, the Jewish people became a religion of the book. And the book was the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now note the date. 90 A.D., 20 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, And I would submit to you that this date forced the Jewish people to go and say the 39 books, it brought them down to 29 or 24, excuse me, 24. These books are our books over against the growing New Testament canon. By 90, John wrote his gospel, and he wrote the epistles. All the other books had been written, except for Revelation. So there was the opposition. Yes, the Jews continued to have that privilege of the permitted religion. But because of their hatred against Christianity, they persecuted the Christians in Smyrna, Philadelphia, and other places. Good question. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Oh, again. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing more. Okay. We have about ten minutes and we shall continue. Now we go to the Modes of interpretation. Four interpretations. Preterist, historicist, futurist, and idealist. And let me just say something. Throughout my commentary, I have avoided, strenuously avoided, to be negative. It is so easy to say, look, I have the right interpretation. 
uh, look at my book. The others are dead wrong. No, that's not my point. My presentation is positive throughout my commentary. I learned that from my predecessor, William Hendrickson. May I say a word about William Hendrickson's book, More Than Conquerors? It was first published in 1939, has never been out of print, still in print today, 2001. Been translated into seven different languages, used the world over. Now, why should I be negative? But what I want to do is say, look, here are the four views. And we evaluate, evaluate, try again, evaluate them and say, here are the positive elements and the negative elements for all four. That, in my opinion, is scholarship. We are not attacking persons. We are ta- attacking, if you want to use that word, attacking, we are attacking concepts. So if I say anything negative by way of here are the negative parts of a view, this is not meant to downgrade, denigrate someone. It's merely to say, well, look, here are pros and cons. I try to be positive. With that in mind, we continue now. The preterist. The name preterist is a combination of two Latin words. Preter means past and era means to go, to go past. Meaning that which has gone past, that is, belongs to the past. According to this view, everything recorded in the Apocalypse was fulfilled in the first century at the time John wrote this book. The preterist teach that the symbolism in Revelation depicts historical events that took took place during the second half of the first century. The book of Revelation relates that that which occurred in the past but has no reference to the present and future. Now, a distinction must be made between the right wing and the left wing of the Preterist school The right wing teaches the inspiration of Revelation and thus hold to a high view of Scripture, while the left wing rejects the inspiration of this last book of the Bible. This comes from Philip Schaff, Philip Schaff, History of the Christian Church, 1910. Those of the right wing contend that most of Revelation was fulfilled in the days of the Roman Empire of the first century. The preterist, quote, look upon Revelation as a book for the day of persecution in Asia Minor, but feel that it has only, at least to a greatest extent, a literary interest for people of our day. And that comes from Ray Summers in his book, Worthy is the Lamb. And the left wing places the apocalypse at the same level as any other apocryphal and pseudepigraphal apocalyptic. In short, preterists either neglect or ignore the predictive element for their focus is entirely on historical events of the first century. 
Now, objections. If you want to call these negatives, fine, I call them objections. First, although the preterists say that the message of revelation can be applied to any age or generation, they fail to appreciate the progress in this book. The apocalypse depicts progress in the predictive events that eventually culminate in the coming of the judge with the attendant judgment of all people. This becomes plain in the accounts of the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. It is difficult to see that the progressive sequence in each of these portrayals refers only to contemporary events in the latter half of the first century. Next. The preterist view conveys the thought that the message of the apocalypse was meant primarily for first century believers. Hence, for believers in subsequent eras, this message has only secondary importance. Persecuted Christians at the time of Nero received words of comfort from John's apocalypse when they heard the victorious Christ address them directly. But the universal church throughout cosmic time also hears the same voice of Christ speaking to them directly in their own circumstances. Likewise, Paul wrote his epistles to specific churches and individuals, but the message of these letters is as relevant to the worldwide church today as it was to Christians in the middle of the first century. And third, preterists identify the beasts of Revelation 13 with Emperor Nero especially in regard to number 666 in verse 18 of the chapter. But the unnatural spelling of the name Neron in Hebrew requires, required to achieve this number remains unconvincing. No doubt John was fully acquainted with the Neronian persecution, but to limit persecution to only one emperor in one particular period in history appears unrealistic. Last, the seven letters to the seven churches in the province of Asia leave the distinct impression that Jesus addressed second or even third generation backsliding Christians. For instance, the church in Ephesus is commanded, commanded, excuse me, is commanded to remember the place from which you have fallen, repent and perform the works you did at first. Revelation 2, verse 5. Paul founded a church in Ephesus in 53 and labored there for three years. He wrote his epistle to the Ephesians in 62 and after his release from prison while Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, Paul in approximately 64 composed 1 Timothy addressed to him and the local church. If, as the preterists say, the Apocalypse was written in about the year 65. Then the letter to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 22, verse 1 through 7, should show wholehearted devotion to the Lord. This is not the case. By contrast, both Ephesians and 1 Timothy reflect problems. But they are those of a growing and developing church. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary.
and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.